Armoire makes getting dressed easy. With a clothing rental membership from Armoire, you can build the perfect wardrobe with brands that are high quality, unique, and recommended just for you. All you have to do is take a five-minute style quiz and select items from your dynamic, personalized closet. The styles will show up at your door in as little as two days. Then when you're ready for new clothes, you just swap them out for more new-to-use styles. Since having kids, I have kind of lost my personal style and I'm using Armoire to help me find it again while trying out different brands and styles without having to add more physical stuff to my wardrobe. And I have a few events that are coming up that I know I am going to want some fancier items to wear than the items that I own. And I don't really want to go shopping for items that are going to sit in my closet without being worn after that one day. I hate the waste that that creates and I love that Armoire allows you to rent high quality designer clothing for any occasion and then send it back. I'm just really grateful that I have Armoire to help me dress for the occasion without having to add something to my closet permanently that I know I'm only gonna be wearing once. Right now, my listeners can give Armoire a try and get up to 50% off their first month. That's up to $125 off. Just visit armwire.style slash minimalish. That's armwire.style, A-R-M-O-I-R-E dot style slash minimalish to get up to 50% off your first month and never worry about what to wear again. Try armwire today. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. This is Minimalish. I'm your host, Desiree, and before we get started, let me be clear. This podcast isn't just about minimalism. It's a podcast about living fully. Over the past few years, I've learned that living with a little less in our homes and on our calendars leads to less cluttering up our minds, which simply helps give us the space to give our time and thoughts to the things that actually matter. So what do we talk about on here? We talk about minimalism and decluttering and how to get there, yes. But we also have conversations about pursuing intentionality in the things that matter, like our motherhood, faith, relationships, work, and mindset. Minimalish is a podcast for the women committed to contentment and loving the life in front of them, committed to living with a little less so they can create space for the things that matter most. What it's not about, how many spoons you should have, or any kind of rules or legalistic minimalism that promises you'll be happier if you just get rid of more stuff. Getting rid of stuff isn't what will make you happy. It's about the life you live with the new space you find. If that sounds good to you, grab a mug of whatever you like and stick around. I'm so grateful you're here. Hi friend, welcome back to Minimalish. This is episode 74 and I'm your host, Desiree. Today I'm chatting with my friend, Christine Platt. She is a children's book author and she kind of shares her everyday minimalist life over at Afro Minimalist on Instagram. I'm so excited to share this conversation with you today because not only did it feel like I was talking to a friend about a bunch of fun and also important things, I just think you're gonna love Christine and I think that you are going to learn so much from her. So we talk about a number of different things. We really talk about minimalism to begin 
begin with her journey and her view on minimalism, which if you like the philosophy of the idea of minimal-ish and the things that I talk about on here, then you're going to love her view as well on minimalism, and I think it's going to be really freeing to you. We also talk about just her journey as an author, and she just shares a lot of her story about how this was never a thing that she intended to do, and now she's doing such purposeful work, which is writing children's books. And we also focus in on the importance of diverse children's literature. We talk about this concept of giving our children windows and mirrors. And I think that this conversation is important, whether we're a parent or a teacher, or we deal with children in some form of our life. We have nieces or nephews or whatever that might be. This conversation is important for you. Let me just tell you a little bit more about Christine before we dive into our conversation. She is a passionate advocate for social justice and policy reform. Her education is in African and African American studies, and she's a believer in the power of storytelling as a tool for social social change. Christine's literature centers on teaching race, equity, diversity, and inclusion to people of all ages. When she's not writing, she spends her time curating The Afro-Minimalist, which is a creative platform chronicling her journey to minimalism. We are going to touch on a lot of those things today, so let's dive into my conversation with Christine. Well, I have Christine from Afro Minimalist on Instagram, and she's also a writer and does so many amazing things, which we're going to talk all about. But before we get started, Christine, I'm so glad to have you here. Could you talk a little bit about who you are and what you do? Sure, sure. And I I feel like I first need to say that this is not my like regular voice <laughs> and that I may be coughing a little bit throughout. I recently returned from a trip to West Africa. It was dry season. <coughs> Excuse me. And so my, my voice is still recovering, but I'm so excited to be a part of this podcast. I'm like, hopefully they can deal with the little coughs here and there. Oh, yeah, um, no problem. <laughs> so I am a, a writer. Um, I am a, literary, a literacy activist and advocate, um, a historian. I do anti-racism work, a little bit of like um, a renaissance woman, I like to call myself every now and then. So also a mother and a minimalist. I've been on my minimalist journey now for almost three years. Um, so yeah, that's who I am. I'm learning a lot from other people, learning a lot about myself on this journey. Um, so yeah, really happy to share my story. Yeah. And we're going to talk about a lot of different things today, but before we dig in, could you tell me a little bit about this trip you just took? Because I saw pictures and (sighs) it seemed just like, Uh, (laughs) tell me about that. As it seemed. Yeah. So for your listeners who don't know, um, I am a, a woman of color. Um, a black woman with um, roots, obviously, in, in some part of West Africa and also from the Caribbean. And so 2019 um, was um, the year of return, which it marked um, 400 years since the first Africans were documented arriving here in America. And they arrived in Jamestown. And, um, you know, there were a couple of um, really important articles that were uh, released on the subject, but the biggest thing were there were a number of African Americans and people of African origin who returned to West Africa, primarily to Ghana, to um, 
sort of uh, celebrate 400 years. Um, and it was called the year of return. And so a number of people went, I am blessed to have had the opportunity um, to go. It was my first trip to West Africa, which surprises a lot of people because I have a background in African and African American studies. I actually have a uh, bachelor's and a master's. Um, that was my area of focus in undergrad and grad school. But again, as I mentioned, I'm also a mother. So like, when am I really going to have time to just like <laughs> go to the continent and like, you know, experience West Africa? So this was a really big deal for me. I literally went at the end of the year, there were people going all year round. And I ended up being able to spend two weeks in um, Ghana, Togo, and Benin. And it was just absolutely magical. It was emotional. I had an opportunity to visit um, Cape Coast Dungeons, actually stand in some of the holding cells where my ancestors would have been held. It was, it was just, it was powerful. Uh, I cried. I met so many amazing people. I had a chance to actually see how beautiful my home, my, my true home was um, and is. Uh, I, I'm over 40, so I'm 43 years old. And so I grew up with a very much indoctrinated view of Africa, especially West Africa. And there was definitely this sort of sentiment that like, you should feel so lucky <laughs> that you're not in West Africa. Oh, those poor people, everyone's struggling, everyone's hungry, every, you know, and, and mm. we were fed a lot of, you know, the only images that I really grew up with of Africa were UNICEF images, right? Mm. So um, I had a, a very distorted view um, very much growing up. It was obviously opened much more during my undergrad and graduate studies, but it's still nothing like actually going there and being there. Um, and it was just magical. I actually filmed a short documentary about my experience that I'll be showing around the country <laughs> wow. um, this year. Yeah. And like really opening up the conversation to other people who have gone and people who have not gone to, um, to just, it's, it's so powerful. And I understand, I mean, it's a journey and it's a journey that a lot of people will not be able to make in their lifetime. And I feel very blessed that I had that opportunity. So definitely want to share my experience. And um, yeah, it was magical. I can go on forever, so I'm going to stop now because like, <laughs> I'll like spend the whole podcast. <laughs> Just on the trip. <laughs> yeah, and like constantly saying, it was magical. It was magical. It was because it was like, you know, it was just, it was amazing. So yeah. So now that I'm back, I've been back almost, uh, almost three weeks now and I'm still processing, you know, like it, it's informed my life, my work, my relationship to this country, my relationship to other people. Like it is just... It was a life-changing, life-changing trip. Yeah, that's amazing. Uh, thank you for sharing about that. And yeah. we are going to be talking about your work a lot and what you do. But before we get there, I want to talk about minimalism a little bit, yeah. which I'm excited to hear just what what your journey was like with that and what kind of led you to that change in your life. And also I want to talk about, you know, your name that you use on Instagram, Afro-minimalist <laughs> Afro yes. and Afro-minimalism and what that looks like. So let's right. approach that <laughs> topic. All right. All right. Let's see here. So we'll start with my journey. Um, yeah, I live in the Washington DC area. Um, before I became a full-time writer, I basically had like a very 
hectic career in um, big law and in the government. <coughs> Excuse me. And, um, you know, I definitely had fallen into the trap of emotional spending. Um, I had a lot of stuff. Like, I don't think people, <laughs> I don't think people could possibly understand or believe how much stuff I had looking at the space that I live in now, because I live in 630 square feet and very intentional, very Afro-minimalist, which I will talk about in a second. Um, but yeah, I just remember, you know, having a day feeling very overwhelmed. There was always something to clean. There was always something to wash. Oh, it was, you know, the thing with having a lot of stuff is you have to manage and take care of a lot of stuff, right? And <clears throat> I just remember it was a Sunday because um, most of my Sundays were devoted to cleaning and taking care of the house back then. And um, I looked around and I was like, I cannot, <laughs> like, I cannot continue like this. I have so much stuff. So I went online, I'm like digging around, you know, everything that comes up, no matter what search term, you'd be like, how can I have less stuff? How can I, you know, simplify my life? How everything was like minimalism, minimalism, minimalism. And I just always associated minimalism with white, white folks, right? Like <laughs> there were like always white folks in the picture and it was always yeah. like one, you know, $10,000 bed, right? With $20,000 white linen. And, you know, I was just like, yeah, that's, so that's not for me. But that day I'd come across this blog um, by Joshua Fields Milborn and Ryan Nicodemus, a minimalist. Um, and at that time they hadn't done their documentary. It was, you know, they were just, um, they were just bloggers. And I just remember reading and learning and just like, looking up from <laughs> my screen and like really seeing everything that I had for the first time. And I was like, okay, I have to start somewhere. And I literally started with removing one thing. I was like, I'm going to remove one thing a day. Um, because I just felt like, I don't know. It felt like I couldn't do it all at once. It just seemed way too overwhelming. I felt like my, our home was going to look empty we were obviously in a much bigger space at the time and the idea of like not having pictures on the wall or not like, I don't know. I just, it, I just couldn't imagine it. So I started removing one thing at a time. And of course you remove one thing and like, it's not like your, your home looks or feels <laughs> completely different. Right. And so then I started like more and more and more and more. And um, I just remember, I, I felt so good just letting go. And then it became, then it just became this thing. The reason um, Afro Minimalist sort of came about is because I'm like, there have to be other people of color out here doing this type of work. Um, there have to be other people who are interested in being minimalist, um, but have only seen some of the barren aesthetic <laughs> images that are so often associated with minimalism. Um, and so I wanted to sort of document and chronicle my approach, which is much more colorful, um, you know, the history of the African diaspora is part of my life's work. So um, it's important for me to have that woven throughout my home. And then it just became a thing, which I never <laughs> expected it to become a thing. And I looked up and then I had like 10,000 followers and I had like 20,000 followers. I was like, this is so crazy. But I've met so many like amazing and wonderful, very eclectic minimalists, which is what I wanted, right? I wanted that community that didn't necessarily have the $10,000 bed, right? Like, and I've mm. met 
um, so many like wonderful families who've converted buses and who've, you know, who are living in tiny houses and like we all share our stories and it's, I don't know, it's just so magical. Like I just feel like they're my, they're my people, you know? Um, and yeah. so Afro minimalism is really just my approach to minimalism, with it, which is just like living an intentional life that's influenced by the African diaspora. Um, and I think it's a good way to sort of take away the barren aesthetic that's often associated with minimalism. I think people tend to confuse the two, right? Like a, living a minimalist life is really living with intention, right? And it, it may not necessarily always look so barren for <laughs> For everyone, right? Like, I mean, if it's living with intention and what makes you happy, and that includes 10,000 plants that are beautifully arranged and each one brings you joy, then that's your version of minimalism, right? Um, and so I, I think people are drawn to the platform just because it, it shows just like a very different side of intentional living. Yeah. And I think what you said is so important that it is about just being more intentional, whether that is with your possessions or with just how you decorate your home or mm-hmm. how you live in general. And I think that idea of if you love plants and fill your home with 10,000 plants, like you said, now you have space for it because you're not filling it with yeah. the stuff you don't need, right? Yeah. And then like, you know, I... I think that people get really caught up in some of the restrictions that they, you know, like they're like, oh, I can't be a minimalist because so-and-so said I can only have this many books or so-and-so said I can only have this many things. And that, and it's like, no, it's the practice of intentional living. I am a writer. I probably have more books in this house than I have clothes. In fact, I'm certain of it. Like (laughs) that's what's important to me. Right. And so like, that's what I have. And for someone else, it may be their shoes. For someone else, it may be, but it's like, get rid of the things that you don't need and that you don't use and that aren't serving a purpose to make room for the things that do, right? Um, and so, yeah, I've, I've had a lot of fun documenting my journey. I've had a lot of fun. I think it's so great to take pictures. I tell people all the time when they're starting their journey to take pictures. I I look back, there was a, um, I was featured on apartment therapy, um, maybe about a year and a half ago now. (laughs) I look back at those pictures and I just remember thinking like, I remember like, this is the, the minimal, like, this is the least amount of stuff I can ever live with. Right. Like this is it. Um, and I, I remember they were like, Oh, you know, just wait until your home is is ready and like you know to you feel like you're at that and I was like this is it and I look back at those pictures and like I've already gotten rid of like half that stuff since right but it's a journey and that you know I think that's part of the process like I remember thinking like oh I can't let go of that and then maybe six months later I can right because I haven't used it I haven't touched it but it may be hard in that moment when I'm confronting letting go of x y and z and I tell people it's okay you know, like keep X, Y, and Z there. If you really don't want it, the time will come when you're able to let it go. Yeah, that's so important. It's so important. It doesn't have to be rushed, right? It doesn't have to yeah. be all in now or never. It's yeah, just... people are so hard on themselves about it. And they're like, I'm going to do it all this weekend. And I'm just like, mm, I don't think that's a good idea, but you can try. I always. <laughs> <laughs> 
you know, like I always encourage people to try, but I'm just like, I just think that's putting a lot of pressure on yourself that you're going to declutter your entire 5,000 square foot home in a weekend, you know, when it took you 10 years to fill it with stuff, like that's a lot, you know? So I think people put a lot of unrealistic pressures and expectations on themselves when it comes to minimalism and living with intention. And um, I really try and encourage people not to do that because it's, I feel like that's when people get to, they're like, I can't be a minimalist. Like, yeah, you can. You just got to take your time with it, you know, be easy with yourself. Right. And define it for yourself. Yeah. That's a big thing for me. (laughs) Yeah. And I love your, I love the pictures that I've seen of your home. It's beautiful. And it just, I feels like if you can make your home a reflection of you with the things that are intentionally there because you use them or you love them, then that's a beautiful way to do minimalism. Definitely. Have you noticed that like you have more space in your in your mind and your day in general oh my God. to do oh the my work gosh. that you love now? Oh my <laughs> gosh. Like I you know, there so you know, I write children's books and I've written <laughs> a lot of children's books over the past two years. Um I I never thought I would be a children's um author, um, just given the nature of the work that I do and it's you know Again, life is a journey, right? And I, I, I love writing for children so much. I actually feel bad for the, the people who bought my first book, which was um, actually an adult historical fiction. And I just feel like so bad. I'm like, I keep promising I'm going to write another story for them. <laughs> you know? Um, there have been times, especially last year, I think, Yeah, I wrote over a dozen children's books last year alone. And I remember there were times where I would just be like sitting at my desk writing. (laughs) I'd look around and I'm like, there's no way that I would be able to do this if I was still living the same life that I was living several years ago. I can clean, like deep clean my entire house in an hour as opposed to spending all Sunday cleaning, right? My clothing is very manageable and simple in terms of care. I think the other thing I'm known for are my jumpsuits <laughs> <laughs> on, on Instagram. And like, for me, that's a, just a very simple way to, to live. Like, I'm like, I'm not trying to figure out what top or bottom I'm wearing, you know what I mean? Like I just put on a jumpsuit. So I mean, all these different ways that minimalism has forced me to be intentional with my home, my wardrobe that have freed up so much space in my life um, and in my mind. And, you know, I remember being that woman who was standing in front of my closet for 25 minutes, like trying to figure out what am I wearing? What am I wearing? And like, that's 25 minutes of time. That's 25 minutes of mental energy. It's 25 minutes of frustration. And then you usually navigate towards what you always (laughs) wear anyway. You know, it's like, there's no way I I say that with like a hundred percent certainty. There's no way I would have the physical and mental freedom that I have now if I were not living this life. So yes, it definitely opened up, um, a lot of time and energy for me. Yeah. Well, I'm so glad it did because I have followed along with what you're doing and the children's books that you write. And (laughs) I 
can you tell me a little bit? I mean, you could tell me right now, where do I find your books? (laughs) Tell me about this process of becoming a children's book author and, and about your books and kind of your mission behind them in general. Yeah. So I'll just start. So the easiest answer is where can you find my books? (laughs) So that's the shortest answer. And that is anywhere books are sold. Um, they're available online. They should be available at your local um, bookstores. I'm a big fan of indie bookstores. Um, if they don't have the shelf space for it, they can order it for you. Um, so yeah, that's the easy, easy answer. Now, <laughs> um, where, uh, how this journey started. So um, around, I think it was like 2013, 2014, Um, I was still working in government. I was working as a senior policy advisor at the Department of Energy. Um, I loved my work, but it was also very monotonous. Um, And I had a dear friend who also had a monotonous job (laughs) (laughs) and routine. And she was like, we should participate in National Novel Writing Month, which is held every November. And I was like, what's that? Um, and she's like, Oh, you have to write 50,000 words in one month. And I was like, why would we do that? (laughs) She was like, because we love reading and we love writing and we should do it. It'll be fun. You know? And so, yeah, I signed up to do national novel writing month. Um, and writing 50,000 words in one month is as crazy as it sounds, but it was also so much fun. And it was how I wrote the draft for my first novel, um, which is called The Truth About a Wee Tea. It's, it's about, um, it's basically, basically a historical fantasy about the transatlantic slave trade. Um, it was a lot of, a lot of fun. Um, and I would say to write only because during that, you know, I was caught up in the whole November madness. And then after is when, um, I mean, you're really writing a good first draft, like you're not going to write an entire novel uh, in a month. Um, And so there was a lot of work that went into it after it. There were a lot of chapters that I wrote after it. Um, It was a very emotional book. Um, But it was more so, you know, I mean, I had a job. I was doing it for myself. So I independently published it. Had a big book launch party with all my friends here in uh in dc and then i just went back to work uh and then people started reading it and people started leaving comments and you know it's writing is such a personal thing um and so i feel like after my friends and family were like oh it's so good i mean like you're your friends and family of course they're gonna you know i was like oh thank you but you know you're like is it really um (laughs) and then when i started to hear from strangers and then I started to hear from professors who were like oh I'm using this in my course I was just like wow this is wild um the book did really really well people still continue um to read it and um a lot of schools still use it um to teach the history of the transatlantic slave trade and also some of its lasting implications after the book sort of starts with the Portuguese entering Africa and ends with the onset of Hurricane Katrina. So it literally spans like this whole sort of lifetime. So that book ended up um, attracting uh, my current agent. Um, And then it was time for me to write book number two. So I like to tell people all the time, number one is usually a lot of fun. There's nothing like book number one. And then book number two is real work, right? Because (laughs) 
now there are like real deadlines and now there are, you know, not arbitrary deadlines that you set for yourself. And now there are readers with expectations. I couldn't write the same. I couldn't deliver the same. It was just very, very different. So my agent has always done writing for children. She manages a lot of um, illustrators and she would always say, have you ever thought about writing for children? And I was like, you know, I can't write for kids. I can't curse. I mean, like, what am I supposed to talk about when I'm, when I'm writing for children? Right? Like, and she had an opportunity that came her way, um, which is now Anna and Andrew. But at the time, a publisher was looking for um, a writer to write four books um, on African-American life and culture um, for children and early, early reader chapter books. And so she was like, why don't you just give it a crack? Like, why don't you just try? Like, oh, Emily, whatever. <laughs> and then, I'm, you know, I'm looking at my screen and looking at this manuscript that I just cannot pull together. And I'm like, what else do I have going on, right? <laughs> so I, I take a crack at basically like writing a synopsis of what the series would be about, what I would name the characters, and like what the first four to six books would be. Literally took me an hour. Um, I sent it over to her like, whatever. And we heard from them <laughs> like a few weeks later, which was so crazy. And I was just, you know, I tell new writers all the time, like, you just never know how your journey is going to go, right? So like, my first book deal was essentially a pitch that I worked on for an hour, and not the novel that I still haven't finished. And so I write Anna and Andrew, I think it's just going to be these four books, um, and people love them because there's just not a lot of diverse children's literature that's out there. And these books, especially for educators, the publisher actually is an educational publisher. Um, and the books were originally just written for, for libraries and schools, <coughs> excuse me, and were only available in hardbacks. A lot of parents and, and educators were like, no, like we want these in our classroom. We need them in paperback. I don't think readers understand the demand <laughs> and the power that they have. And so the books were, all of a sudden, they found a way to publish them in paperback. And then they were like, we want more books. So last year, I wrote four more books in the series. And in 2020, I'm under contract for six more books in that series. Um, and so Anna and Andrew are two siblings that live in Washington, D.C. And they basically just go on adventures with their family. And, you know, they have family in Savannah, Georgia. So that gives me an opportunity to teach them a little bit about Southern history and culture and, and sort of weave in um, moments of you know, it's tough topics to talk about, right? Like there's a whole thing that, you know, teaching, teaching history can be hard, right? So finding ways to just weave it into the story and sort of normalize it um, rather than making it this glaring, horrible <laughs> moment that it probably was. Like it's hard to teach kids that way, right? And so mm. I think the response from parents and educators with these books has been, it's been wonderful. And I'm grateful they serve as windows and mirrors. So um, I know you probably see me talk about that a lot on Instagram, um, which is that, is that is what books are, especially for our children. I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Christine today, but I wanna take a second to thank 
the sponsors that are helping make this episode of Minimalish possible. As parents, we want to encourage our children to pursue their dreams and provide opportunities that give them the best chance to succeed. Even though my daughter is only two, I already feel this and I want to do the best I can to help her do that. Sometimes that means maybe optimizing their routine or making it more flexible so they have more time to focus on what they love. You know I'm all about having space in our lives to focus on what matters to us. I believe our kids deserve the same opportunity to do that. So I want to tell you about Laurel Springs because they offer this opportunity of flexibility and a personalized learning experience for our kids. Laurel Springs is an accredited online private school for students in kindergarten through 12th grade. Laurel Springs recognizes that each child is a unique individual with their own personal interests special talents, unique learning style, their flexible learning program offers challenging and diverse elective courses, and they're accredited by the Western Association of Schools and Colleges and Advanced Ed, which means their transcripts are recognized by colleges and universities worldwide. I love that Laurel Springs offers students flexibility and a personalized learning experience that's really catered to their learning style. If you think this is something that your child might benefit from, listeners of Minimalish can get their registration fee waived. So register your child at laurelsprings.com slash minimalish today and receive a waived registration fee. That's laurelsprings.com slash minimalish for your waived registration fee. laurelsprings.com slash minimalish. I also want to tell you about PrepDish. You may have heard me talk about PrepDish before. They're a longtime sponsor of the show and I just love all that they're about. If you want to simplify meal planning, PrepDish is one of my favorite companies that can help you out with this. They're a meal planning service that sends you an email with a meal plan, grocery list, and prep ahead instructions every single week so that all of your meals are planned out and completely ready for the week. You can choose from gluten-free, paleo, and even keto options, and it makes eating healthy so much easier. The meals are also delicious. I love that there's no guesswork when it comes to actual mealtime each day because as a mom, everyone, including myself sometimes, gets a little cranky around this time of day and the last thing I want to think about is what's for dinner and feeling like I have to start from scratch with a meal idea. Thanks to PrepDish, it's already planned out for me and I've already done a bulk of the prep earlier in the week. If you're looking to cook healthier meals for your family but also wanting to simplify the whole thing, definitely check out PrepDish. The best part, Allison, the founder, is offering listeners of Minimalish a two-week free trial, so you've got nothing to lose. That's literally two weeks of meals planned out for you, grocery lists and prep included for free. Head to PrepDish.com Minimalish to try it out. That's PrepDish.com Minimalish to try it out. All right, let's get back to my conversation with Christine. I just love it. Um, it's so beautiful how you talk about the idea of the windows and mirrors and how you offer that through your books. So how do we, if you want to explain it a little bit more, if you'd like to, and just how do we do better? How do we offer this experience? Me, I think that's what's so powerful about books, right? And I mean, mm -hmm. before the age of the internet, I mean, that is how we learned about other histories and cultures, right? It's like, I mean, I remember, reading <laughs> all about Laura Ingalls and like really wishing I lived during that time because her life seemed <laughs> so fabulous. Right. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, obviously I didn't know any better, but anyway, um, you know, but that is how we learned about history and culture was through literature. So when, whenever you hear folks talk about windows and books being windows and mirrors, they are mirrors in the sense, so Anne and Andrew, let me explain it this way, Anne and Andrew would be mirrors for African-American 
children. It's an opportunity to, for them to see themselves represented on the page in a positive way, see um, family life that is similar to their own, and to learn about um, their history and culture. And these books also serve as windows for children who are not African-American or of African descent because they have an opportunity to sort of peek into, like imagine them peeking into a window and learning about, you know, another another way of life, another culture, another history. And it's really powerful. And I think, you know, exposing your children to diverse literature early on is what is so important. Um, and it's, you know, it's not just African-American um, literature, it's indigenous literature and stories, um, it's Latinx stories. It's, you know, our country is, is made up of so many people, different nationalities and cultures. Um, and exposing children to that in a book and normalizing their lives and, and letting them see like, oh, you know, they eat this for dinner and oh, they play with their friends. Like, and I know it sounds so ridiculous, but kids, their minds are, are very limited because of their, their lifespan <laughs> at the time on earth, right? I mean, they don't have a lot of context. They don't have a lot of experience. And so, you know, it's sort of our responsibility to expose and, and normalize them um, to, to lives other than their own. And so I think um, children's literature plays a powerful role in that. It's one of the reasons why there's been such a push um, in the industry for, di for diverse stories. We Need Diverse Books is a, is a wonderful resource for that. I, I love early readers because parents are able to read them with their kids um, together, and then the children are able to read them independently. Um, and I've had parents tell me, even their kids as young as two, who obviously cannot read, but they can see themselves represented on the page, and they can see their parents and their family represented on the page, you know? And so I'll have, you know, maybe a parent reach out to me and they're like, oh my goodness, my daughter's pointing at the picture of, you know, Anna and Andrew's mom. And they're, she's like, mama, that's you, mama. You know, like Aww, those things yeah. are so, so important. Um, and then also one of the reasons why um, it's really important for me um, with these books serving as mirrors is because we know that children are more apt and likely to read when they see themselves represented on the page, right? So I'll also hear from parents who are like, oh, my son hated reading until I got him your books. And I was like, no, he probably loved reading all along. He just hated not seeing himself in the story, right? It gets kind of boring when you're always, always, always looking into and seeing someone else's fabulous life, right? Like, mm -hmm. I want to do fun things. Why can't the kid on the page look like me do fun things, right? So yeah, there's a lot of a lot of power in children's literature. And I think, you know, as a parent, that's one of the things that I would definitely recommend that you do, right? In your home, and also in your library. Like, I mean, go to your public library and say, do you have this book, this book, this book, and this book? And they'll order them. I mean, they have the budget <laughs> yes. for them. You know what I mean? And like that helps not only your household, but that also helps the community, right? For some children, it's a safe way for them to peek into lives that they're curious about, but may not want to ask questions about, right? 
Right. And it opens that door to, okay, now that I've learned through a book, I could be friends with, with yeah, that yeah. kid in my class that and looks like builds, Andrew. And it builds over time. I think that's what, what folks also forget is that like, especially when it comes to teaching history, like you build on it over time. It's, it's helping not only your child, it's helping their teachers, right? Like you, for example, in the book, Going to Ghana, Anna and Andrew have an opportunity to go with their dad. He's presenting uh, at a conference in Accra and he has, you know, they get an opportunity to go with him to Ghana. Um, they, they visit one of the slave castles there. And all of this is talked about in a very, very, age appropriate way. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a way to introduce children to slavery, the horrors of slavery, the realities of slavery, um, the realities that the African Americans who are here in, in America are these descendants of slaves, right? You can have these conversations and the books always end joyously, but the first the first time a child is hearing about slavery won't be in fifth grade. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's so hard to try and um, engage students and expect the level of empathy I think that we expect from some of our students when the first time they're hearing about something is when they're 12, 14, 15 years old. They have no idea what you're talking about or why you want them to be empathetic or why they should be. Right. And so for me to hear from white mamas who are like, oh, my gosh, her son um, is five and they had read Going to Ghana. And she said, you know, he was just so fascinated by this story. It makes this connection. And she said, you know, he just can't stop talking about this story and how, you know, the slave dungeons were. And that's, you know, that's the door of return. And then he drew a picture for his class. And like, I mean, like she was just so excited and like, thank you for, you know, making this an accessible subject for us to talk about. Mm. I, I have so many amazing and wonderful stories that I get to share. I do on, on, on my Instagram. So if there are any parents listening out there that want to sort of, you know, check in and um, sort of see how that could work, definitely check out some of the little squares, any square where you see um, a happy, smiling face yeah. <laughs> of a child. Those are usually, <laughs> usually like, can I share the picture, you know? Um, yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's wonderful work, and it's work that we can all do. And uh, so, yeah, I'm a big, big advocate of diverse children's literature. Yeah, and I, I love that it just opens that conversation at home mm-hmm. you're in a safe space where it's, so it's not you get to have that conversation and open up that conversation in your home versus you just don't know what what's coming out of the yeah. mouth of a teacher at yeah. school, you know? Yeah, yeah. And you're so, not there yeah. to hear and it, and you're you know, not there to navigate that. To answer questions in a way that you feel comfortable as a parent answering, right? So, I mean, there were. I remember when my daughter was younger, she's 16 now, but, you know, kids ask some really, <laughs> some really tough questions sometimes, right? And I remember being able to tell her, like, Nala, like, when you, you know, if I tried to explain this to you now, you wouldn't understand. But mommy promises I'll tell you more when you're old enough to get, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. having the power to 
say that, whether because you're not ready to talk about it <laughs> just yet, or you're not ready to explain um, and go deeper a little yet, it gives you it gives you a lot of it gives you a lot of power, and it also you know starts building this trust that you want your children to have when it comes to talking about really tough things, right? Right. Yeah. So, so good. So many <laughs> kids and, and families are benefiting from these books. And I just love how you never set out to write children's books, but now you're so passionate about it. And it's I just so think wild. that's really beautiful. It's yeah, it's so wild. And I, you know, life is just wild, right? You never fully know the journey that you're on. And I try and really operate from this place of, you know, that whole concept of having a year of yes. Mm-hmm. And I always wonder like, gosh, what if I had never just said, ah, let me just try. Okay, yeah, I'll do it, Emily, fine. You know what I mean? I'm (laughs) I'm usually always agreeing to do something begrudgingly. But anyway, (laughs) that's like part of my creative process. But, um, (laughs) you know, I, I, I do. I look back and I'm just like, wow, like I would have never been on this wonderful adventure. I would have never been contributing to this growing body of necessary work for, for young readers. yeah, so it's just been this beautiful, wild journey, and uh, I I love it. And kids are so much more open and and very engaging. And you know, um, the older kids, when I go to talk to middle school students, it's really more so to talk about the process of writing and the power of words and language, right? And they're like, they're so over us adults, right? They're just like. Just cannot believe that we are still out here arguing and talking about race and they're like but the world is like we need to find a new earth and I'm like all of these things are true <laughs> you know what I mean like they're so over us right and so right. Um, I also think that like writing for and working with uh, young people it just gives you hope you know um, and they they have an opportunity and many opportunities that, you know, much of the older generation never had. And they're making really good use of it. Yeah, I mean, I, I honestly, you know, you work with young people, you're like, we're going to be fine. We are. We're going to be fine, you know? Yeah, that's so, that's so true. I was a middle school teacher for a while. It is hopeful to see that they maybe have it together a little bit more. Than yeah, well, I mean, they're more informed, you know yeah. what I mean? Like, they're informed and they're more aware. You know, I talk to my daughter about that all the time. I'm like, you don't understand the power that you have growing. Like if I had had Google, if I had had YouTube, I would have been an amazing teenager, but I had to struggle and figure out how to, you know, put on makeup on my own. Right. (laughs) I mean, like that's a simple, very simple way to look at it, but like the, the access that they have to not only be informed about themselves, but also about the world is so infinite, right? Like they would have never only had, well, they, they never have just, you know, images of, of Africa because of UNICEF, right? Like they could literally go on Google Earth and like go look at, like, it's just wild to me. So anyway, yeah. you know, I feel like, you know, they have more access to information, which is why they are more well-informed and also more aware and and willing to to make some of the social changes that may be harder for people who, who, who didn't grow up with that, so... 
the good parts of the internet. The <laughs> there are so parts. many good parts. There are Yeah, we're, you know, we're, we're living in a very, very interesting time. And I, I think because of the access that young people have, it's one of the reasons why we can't continue to sort of, you know, shelter them and try and keep them in the safe bubble. Right. And I was, I was a total bubble mom. So I get it. Like I, Mm -hmm. the world is so crazy and, and so scary when you think about it. And I just, you know, I just kept her in that, in that safe bubble as long as possible and just let the air out really, (laughs) really slow. But like, by the time she reached high school, I was like, here we go. Like, I mean, I can't, you can only keep them sheltered for so long, right? Um, mm. So yeah, it's one of the reasons why we, we don't have the luxury of, of sheltering and bubbling our children um, as much as some of our like foremothers did, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I am loving this conversation so much <laughs> and I'm so excited to to share it and I just think it's important. It's important that we be intentional for all of those reasons to give our kids those opportunities for the windows and the mm-hmm. mirrors. And I'm glad mm-hmm. that your your books do that. Um, I have two questions, though, that I yes. always ask every guest. Yes. <laughs> I want to know what's something that you're simplifying right now? <sighs> you know, and that was a very heavy sigh. <laughs> Um, And for good reason. Being in West Africa definitely taught me and showed me just how hectic a lifestyle we live here in the West. Oh my gosh. Like it was so, I think because I was there for two weeks, I really had an opportunity to sort of just shift mentally and physically and emotionally. Um, And I came back and it was just very, very jarring. And I live in Washington, D.C., which is probably one of like, the busiest, hectic cities in, you know, the United States, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I live, you know, I mean, White House is right there. Capitol Hill is right there. There's a lot of social unrest and anxiety here in the city. I came back and I was just like, everything is so rushed and hurried and frantic and everyone just seemed to look so unhappy and miserable. And I was just like... <laughs> I don't want to be here, you know? (laughs) And so I think right now, one of the things that I'm really trying to simplify is how can I manage my time, space, and energy very differently so that I don't fall into the hecticness that is so associated with our culture. And I just, it's very... um, it's very unsettling, and I think it's very easy to, to get caught up in normalizing how we move in this country um, because everyone moves that way, right? Like everyone's rushed, mm. everyone's hurried, everyone's like, "What time is it? What are we?" Uh, uh, you know. Um, and so, <clears throat> when I feel myself now, I guess sort of moving into that space, like making sure that I pause, I'm really trying to simplify like how I manage my 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 energy and my spirit and my flow and my hurriedness, um, and make sure that I remain at a pace that is very comfortable for me. 2019 was not comfortable at all. Always tired, always rushing, always missing a deadline, always, always, you know, and it was just, it didn't feel good, you know? Um, and so not being in that space, uh, I don't, I don't want to return to that space. So that's my, that's my answer. (laughs) Yeah, that's so good. It's so hard to get, I mean, I know 
that I don't like the pace of our country. It doesn't work for my personality type for most people. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, it's so easy to get caught up in that more of not just the more of stuff, but the more of doing. And more, it's so, it's so much. And, you know, I, I think the problem is that we tend to neglect some of the, some of the best parts of ourselves when we, when we do that, you know, um, I was telling a friend, like hearing myself say out loud, like I, I used to think it all throughout 2019 and actually, and actually do this, but hearing myself say out loud, like, oh my God, I don't have time to eat right now. Like that is so ridiculous how do you not have time to eat and take care of yourself? Right? Mm. Like, that's crazy. And so when I feel myself moving into that space, and I think certain careers, certain lifestyles, certain, you know, responsibilities sort of lend themselves to people, you know, certain people finding themselves in that space more than others. And the writer's life is definitely a life like that. And I have to just really like pause and be like, ma'am, you need to eat to survive. (laughs) You need to eat to not faint. You know what I mean? Like, like, what are you talking about? It takes two minutes to make a sandwich, you know, it's, but, but we can get so caught up in that. So, so yeah, that's, and I'm, I'm, I'm being very intentional about that. That's so good. Okay. Then my second question is what is something that you can't stop talking about right now? Clearly, I I can't stop talking about West Africa. Like, I can't. I just can't. I probably never will be. (laughs) (laughs) It it just, it was, it was everything. I can't stop talking about it. Um, Yeah. And just, yeah, just like being really excited about, about this new decade and um, beginning a new decade in West Africa and, and, and starting it at a, space and in a in a pace that I really want yeah I can't stop talking about it that's amazing (laughs) I knew I knew that was gonna be your answer for that one I'm so thankful I got to hear a little bit about your trip and I'm so thankful we got to have this conversation thank you so fun so fun thank you so much for having me I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Christine as much as I did. I hope you felt like you were talking to two friends and just enjoying fun and important conversations. I really loved at the end how Christine talked about this concept of our pace and slowing down and the fast pace that we often feel pressured to put ourselves in. I have felt that and I have been slowing down a tremendous amount recently and it has felt really good. So I can fully agree with Christine on that one. We are also currently like two days into a slow living challenge in the minimalish community, in our Patreon community. So if you want to join that, if you want to slow your pace a bit, we're focusing on things like prioritizing relationships, deciding that we don't have to go at the same pace as everyone else, deciding that we get to change our minds on things. We will be focusing on our consumption habits and consuming less, and we'll be focusing on, of course, putting what matters most to us at the forefront of our lives and really deciding how we need to restructure our days to do that and deciding what slow living even means to us as individuals and what it looks like for our families. So if that's something of interest to you, it's not too late to join. You can head over to patreon.com slash minimalish and see what that's all about. I would love to see you in that challenge. I am excited to be doing it and going through it with you all myself. 
We also just had an interview last week with the author of Chasing Slow, Aaron Lochner, which we read as a group last month. And that was really amazing. And you can watch the replay of that when you jump into the Slow Living Challenge. So with all of that said, friend, that is all I have for today's episode. I hope that you enjoyed it. And if you did enjoy it, would you share it with a friend or share it on Instagram? This just helps bring more women into the community. It encourages me when I see that you're sharing the show and that you're enjoying it. And I am so grateful for that. It helps me keep going and keep creating. For the rest of March on Minimalish, we will be focusing on spring cleaning because spring is right around the corner. So really we're focusing on spring decluttering. And if you have stumbled upon the podcast Minimalish, this podcast right here, because you want to know more about decluttering and getting rid of stuff and methods to do that and hearing others share about those stories. That's definitely not all we talk about here, but for the next couple of weeks, we're going to be talking about different methods to approach decluttering. And we're going to be hearing a couple of other women's stories about decluttering with their families. So I cannot wait to share those with you. So stay tuned in for the next couple of weeks for some decluttering inspiration, whether this is your first time around or you just need to do some maintenance decluttering, or you just like hearing other people talk about decluttering. This is the place for you for the next couple of weeks. All right, friend, I will talk to you right back here next week. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.